Hello. Just a quick note from Carrie before we begin. This episode contains mentions of suicidality, ableism, abuse, exploitation, medical trauma, white supremacy, and eugenics. Please exercise listener discretion. Welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour podcast, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On this podcast, we like to explore what we can do to treat our conditions to live more fulfilling lives. My name is Carrie, and I've been diagnosed with HEDS and several other related conditions. On this episode, I'm speaking with L. Tuttle, they, them, and Audrey Wirtanen, she, her, two disabled community organizers, care access advocates, artists, and researchers who co-founded and co-direct Hype Access. Hype Access is a hypermobile-specific disability justice organization working to increase care access and justice for hypes, a term they coined, in the arts, medicine, and alternative therapy spaces. Elle and Audrey met in a somatic training that was not accessible to them. And so they developed Hypermobile Accessible Proprioceptive Training, or HAPT, H-A-P-T, by combining sensorimotor theory with the values of disability justice. Elle and Audrey develop and operate multi-field care access programs, and they are accessibility consultants for dance organizations and policy groups. They also run IRB-approved research and collaborate with scientists at WUSTL and Keene State. We'll include a link to their website in the episode notes. Ellen Audrey, hello, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Carrie. Um, we're really happy to be here and really excited about where your work is going. Oh, this is Elle speaking. Um, we're very appreciative of your support. Um, it's me and Audrey here. We are both hypermobile, autistic, queer, and identify as MAD, experience mobility impairments. I am a psych survivor and a wheelchair user. Um, Audrey, anything you wanna add? I don't think so, but hello, it's great to be here. And thank you, Carrie, as well. Yeah, thank you so much for your time and being here. I'm really excited for this chat. Um, could you start out by telling us a little bit about how the two of you met and your path to forming Hype Access? Yeah, um, this is Al, I'm gonna start. Um, I was diagnosed with HEDS in college uh, and started doing a lot of research kind of right away. And then I came to New York to what's considered a progressive Alexander Technique training program um, run by someone who is also hypermobile, but really didn't know anything about EDS, certainly not the medical care landscape. Um, as a student there, I started educating and developing safety practices to not get injured in class and eventually prevent others from getting injured. Um, Alexander Technique's particular focus on the head and neck uh, carries an extreme risk for worsening or even causing craniocervical instability. Um, so uh, did a lot of work there developing protocols and eventually what became HAPT, the therapy we developed and uh, use now. Um, and I started 
and began running a community organization there. However, the teacher who ran the program was taking credit for my work from the beginning. So it was a really complicated situation with a lot of ableism, sexism, gender bias, racism, emotional abuse, and physical injury. And then Audrey came and joined the program. <laughs> Excuse me. I did. Um, so I joined the program because I was a science and dance major in college, and I took an Alexander Technique lesson when I was really sick and in a lot of pain. Um, and it took some of the pain away. And from a science mind, I went, well, that's weird because, you know, in a um, oftentimes uh, scientific communities perceive alternative body-based practices as kind of woo-woo or there's nothing really physiologically uh, the mechanism of what's happening or why someone might be experiencing what they are. So I actually did the first research correlating somatic practice exposure and changes in um, motor planning signatures in the brain. Um, and that's really what led me to this same program that Elle described previously. Um, and when I first got there, I was undiagnosed and still very ill. Um, I mean, I'm still very ill, but you know, that's how it goes. And Elle was the first person to say to me, hey, I think you have EDS. And of course, everything clicked, made perfect sense. Um, they connected me to medical care. And I realized very quickly in this training that the only person who wouldn't injure me was Elle. So I recognized that I really needed to be learning from Elle instead of everyone else. And because of my science background and my interest in sensory motor theory and you know how sensation is integrated at various levels of the nervous system, we really started creating not just a practice together, but also the theory behind why it works or why we observe it works. Um, and as we continued working together, we were presenting and getting you know noticed more in the area, even by um, medical schools. And uh, we did a, a pilot study actually looking at HAPT um, in hypermobile people. And just through all of this work was really our inroad to hypermobile specific community organizing and what we do now. But we, we left that program and now are doing really what we want to be doing, which includes HAPT, but it's actually much more than that at this point. Yeah. Yeah, that's a fantastic overview. And Elle, I'm so sorry you had to experience such a toxic environment. And someone, I mean, all of the things you mentioned are just horrific. But then on top of it, having someone taking credit for your work. And that's, it's such a, ugh, a gross issue in the hypermobile community that it's uh -huh. <laughs> certainly something that is a bit too widespread. And that's part of what I really, you know, what really resonated for me with your work. You know, you, you really are, you know, have, su have such a great focus on proper attribution and giving credit where credit's due. And I think the story of the two of you coming together out of these really adverse circumstances and, you know, finding each other and finding that connection and 
you know, being able to build this amazing organization out of it is just, it's, it's so inspiring, but it's still so unfortunate that you had to, you know, go through as much as you had to, but clearly it's taught you a lot, you know, in terms of maybe what to do and what not to do. Um, <laughs> And it's still, it's so interesting how the person leading this course or this program that brought you together was also hypermobile, but didn't know a lot about hypermobility. And that's a common theme I've noticed too, that a a lot of people or a lot of people that have been interviewed on this podcast, you know, they've gone through a lot of formal training and because the way hypermobility and Ehlers-Danlos are described and taught, even providers and practitioners who have the condition think they don't have it because they think of it in these very concrete, absolute terms. And as we know, it's a huge spectrum and can even, you know, vary for an individual's experience from day to day. So, oh, I'm so sorry you had to, you know, come together in such adverse circumstances, but so glad that you found each other and the work your organization does is just um, so amazing. And in particular, this hypermobile accessible proprioceptive training or HAPT is so fascinating. Can you give us a little bit of an overview of what HAPT is and what role it can play for hypermobile patients? Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, I I had a thought and then I lost it in response Mm. to something you said previously. Um, Do you have the thought? I, I have I have one thought. I, yeah, I mean, I'm not, it doesn't directly answer this question, but um, just kind of going back to our training um, and the patterns that we observe so much in the hypermobile community. I mean, this was a situation of what we call an abled aligned person, someone who does not identify as disabled is really kind of repelled and repulsed by those people and those identities um, and the dynamics that play out when someone like that has power in the hypermobile community and how, you know, this person and so many other people um, take credit for the work of disabled creators and organizers um, and like the abuse that I endured and then Audrey and other hypermobile folks who came to the program endured. because of that, it's really par for the course. It's like a central problem in the community. Um, And yes, no one should ever have to experience it. And it is a driving force in what we try to do differently, which HAPT is a big part of. Yeah, and HAPT is really in response to all of those experiences. Like we are really trying to provide and facilitate experiences that actually support someone in, you know, kind of regaining health autonomy, having, following their intuition in their own experience, believing themselves in their own experience and making decisions to support themselves following identification of, you know, whatever might be happening. Um, But HAPT, and we actually call it hypermobile accessible proprioceptive therapy, but training is also a great option because it's kind of the same thing. And we do train people, but we do think of it as a therapy Yeah, um, and are moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to go a little bit into like the basics and some of the science. So 
please carry. If I'm not making sense, let me know. And I would love to clarify. And then Elle's going to talk a little bit more about the role it can play for hypermobile people. So HAPT is primarily a touch therapy, which is why Elle, who comes up with all of the very witty names, <laughs> named it HAPT because haptic, the word, is touch. So HAPT is primarily a touch-based therapy. It has a framework of hypermobile risk minimization. So we really want to make sure that we're not increasing spinal instability or instability in any way. And we want to go at a pace that is supportive and safe for the person. And so the shifts that happen do not end up causing more harm or, you know, developing kind of a pattern of, oh, there's temporary relief and then you fall back into it. Oh, there's temporary relief and then you fall back into it. Because every time, from our perspective, connective tissue within joint structures are subluxed or dislocated, um, there's a tissue de-adhesion that happens. And, you know, as we know, hypermobile people heal much more slowly and have mast cell complications as well, which can create a very, uh, what they call, hypoxic environment. I think that's what I'm good. Low-grade hypoxia. Yes, it's kind of like chronic low-grade hypoxia, which means not enough oxygen. So you get in this loop that makes it very difficult to, to heal those tissues. And when that joint is then un unstable, um, you're at risk of doing it again, you know, and, and then sometimes you get some instability that is lifelong. I mean, most people's patterns are lifelong. Um, so our goal is to kind of take pressure off of those joints, but we do it in a way that doesn't ask anything of the person. So they don't have to be moving. Um, they don't need to be focusing on what we're doing. We can be having a conversation. Maybe the person falls asleep. We don't really feel that awareness is a, or kind of focusing and actively trying to focus is necessary to gain an awareness or just a better understanding of your own sensory experience. The receptors that are in connective tissue, <laughs> this is my favorite part, are the really the feedback, beginning of the feedback mechanism for autonomic system regulation, particularly body systems that have a neuromuscular component. So that includes the GI tract, cardiovascular system, obviously musculoskeletal, you know, muscle co-contraction for coordination. All of the receptors that give the nervous system information about what's happening in those tissues are in connective tissue. And so when someone has widespread hypermobility, those connective tissues are maybe more mobile, they might tear more easily. You know, there's many other, other situations there, but those are kind of the, the basic kind of understanding. Those receptors are going to be impacted. And not only are they going to be impacted by the kind of consistency difference of the tissue, but also, you know, injury, chronic injury, pain, and fatigue. We know that when there is a presence of pain in a muscle, that actually the spinal circuits, which 
organize, you know, receive information and then send out input to muscles, it doesn't go all the way up to your brain. So the spinal circuits, you know, do that whole loop-de-loop at the spine, the level of the spine and the the, um, central uh, spinal cord inside and outside of the spinal cord. And so when the presence of pain is in a muscle, that loop is actually going to shift how the muscles are contracting to try and, you know, essentially not make it worse. So there's a lot going on from the information of the receptors. And really, these systems rely on the information from these receptors to function. So when they're impacted by these things, it just kind of compounds this dysregulation. So are, you, are we all with me here? Yeah, this is so fascinating. And okay. I feel like you're explaining the mechanism of what has been going wrong with my muscles and connective tissue my whole life. <laughs> so fascinating. And I, this is the best, most kind of useful description of that process that I've ever heard. And, you know, not to impugn any of the other guests or anything, but I think <laughs> really a testament to how much work and careful study and analysis you've done. Yes, this is absolutely fascinating and incredible. Okay, cool. Um, So one example that I like to use as another example of how this works, not just in the neuromuscular system or the musculoskeletal system is um, in the heart. So in the ventricles, there are all of these receptors, you know, in the connective tissue around the smooth muscle. And there's a bundle of nerve cells that is outside of the heart, but is not close to the spinal cord. It's really still in your torso. And it's called the AV node. And the AV node is really responsible for when that chamber squeezes. And what those rece- what happens is those receptors are literally sensing, you know, like, pressure increase from the blood that fills into the ventricle, sends that information to the AV node. And once it reaches a threshold, the AV node is like, okay, squeeze. And then the blood is squeezed out. So I really like to think of these receptors as like, they literally feel, right? Whether I'm conscious of it or not, that information is always happening and really setting up the conditions for the continued responses of our systems to kind of maintain homeostasis or stability. Um, that another is so thing- fascinating. And I think <laughs> that, well, I'm like, I'm trying to absorb all this new information and it, it just, it's, oh, there's just such this ring of not only truth, but speaking to this like deep, sort of what seems unexplainable in dysautonomia and POTS yeah. and yeah. all these things. Where, <laughs> yeah. where, where, it's just, it's, it's making not, I'm sorry to interrupt you, but it's no, just it makes me think about, you know, all of those. And again, we don't need to name names who describe this condition as psychosomatic. And it's just uh-huh. making mm-hmm. at thinking about that because <laughs> I, I've long suspected that there's this element going on. There's this process going on that's outside of my conscious control. And you just explained so well how this, how, how everyday life and just, you know, living creates these processes, which can lead to these very significant dysfunctions and symptoms. And 
all kinds of things, you know, the Salvania pots are kind of just, or Massel kind of tip of the iceberg on all this stuff. And so that is absolutely incredibly fascinating and, and so detailed. And just a quick kudos to um, Elle being the great wordsmith and coming up with Hapt and the relationship. <laughs> I just wanted to mention that before I forgot, but um, yeah, so uh, utterly fascinating. Yeah, uh, yeah. Sorry. sorry for interrupting you, please go on. I know I'm really going on the science here. Um, so another thing about these receptors <laughs> is that they sense pressure, they sense temperature, they sense vibration, and they also sense pain. And they actually all have the same basic receptor structure. The difference is protein variation on those receptors. So everyone is going to have really specific to their own experience distribution of these receptors, where the pain receptors might be, et cetera. And so what we do is we really try and target the receptors that are sensing pressure and temperature and pain that are closer to the surface of the body. They're called cutaneous receptors. So they're not the ones inside the joints. And they actually contribute to balance and coordination much more than the ones in the joints do, which is a, a pretty common misconception that body awareness is primarily in the joints. It's really all of the cutaneous tissues that, that play a, a really big role there. And so by contacting, making contact, you know, we're activating those receptors and hopefully clarifying that information and just allowing someone's system to integrate it in the way that it happens without really, you know, imposing a framework on what should be happening or what someone should be feeling and working with them to kind of identify what is their sensory baseline and, and how does it shift based on various kinds of information. Yeah. And this is L. Um, I think what Audrey is describing and how we kind of understand the mechanism. I mean, to, to us, dysautonomia and mast cell are not mysterious comorbidities. They are manifestations of connective tissue differences. And this is why I think this is how we use science uh, as a pathway of taking the onus of kind of overcoming um, to use kind of an ableist term, um, the experiences hypermobile people have, like it should not all be their responsibility. And if we understand the mechanism better, um, that really aids with that. It also <laughs> really disproves a lot of assumptions within everything in medicine from specialties to physical therapy. Um, the goal there is always for people to become less disabled. We find with HAPT and working with HYPES that sometimes it helps them identify what their impairments are, what supports they need. Like within Alexander Technique, I think there was a lot of resentment towards us that us kind of figuring out what was going on in our bodies led to us identifying as disabled, even using mobility aids. There's this ableism is so embedded, whether you're in medicine or really related alternative therapies. And sometimes what people need is more support and 
more um, to live their life as a disabled person in order to not be damaging their their joints and their systems as much to have a higher quality of life. So this is a lot of what we think about in the interaction and combination of science with disability justice practice. And we really think about HAPT as a resource for all hypermobile people, not just people who interact with the medical system. Some people have no medical care access and they still deserve therapies like this. And I mean, in the EDS field, they talk about proprioception, right? And that is what we're talking about. That's these receptors, but they think about it in a very reductive way. They only think about certain receptors, certain processes. And we really feel that these kinds of therapies, well, I guess they don't really exist. We feel these therapies need to be more widely accessible, what we've developed and what we hope will grow from it. Um, because hypermobile people, it, it's really a disability right from our perspective for people to have proprioceptive therapy, for people to have options for health autonomy, for people to not be punished for um, their experiences, not be blamed for them. So the science and the disability justice liberation framework really come together there. And we'll end with, with that on this section. Yeah, I mean, that was just such an incredible overview. I'm still kind of absorbing everything. Um, but there were so many things to unpack, so many brilliant insights um, in what you just said. Um, I guess so first to start with um, some of what Audrey was saying, like this notion of how it's that really these cutaneous receptors and not just the joint receptors I feel like that's such a revelation and mm-hmm. and, like, and like you both talked about, it's really fundamentally disruptive to so many of the basic yes. assumptions that underlie yes. the quote unquote, I'm making air quotes when I say science of hypermobility, because <laughs> as, far as, as far as I'm concerned, like much of the science of hypermobility starts and ends with your work. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's really, Thank you. We appreciate that. <laughs> Uh, absolutely well it's such it's so groundbreaking and and like you know you were talking about how you know physical therapy and i was even i was thinking about how this practice really seems to combine the best parts of so many you know like craniosacral therapy so many massage touch therapy but uh, but also with this deep knowledge of the science behind what you're doing and I think, um, I mean, this treatment sounds exactly just right on for so many hypermobile people I know, myself very much included, because you know I've struggled with those experiences in physical therapy too. I've had physical therapy sessions that have damaged joints and made things worse. Yeah. And when you're going through that and you're saying this is painful, hey, I don't know if we should be doing this movement given you know this and you're talking to someone who has no familiarity at all with hypermobility or Ehlers-Danlos and they're always saying no pain no gain push through I've long suspect yeah exactly it's like I've long suspected that that was the wrong approach and that the pain is there for a reason and that it tells us when you know tissue is like those adhesions we were talking about earlier that it's indicative of, of something going on. Obviously, it you know pain is complex and there's a number of factors that go into it. But 
but you're addressing the root cause in a way that is accessible for hypermobile people of all you know physical manifestations and levels of ability. And I love this practice that doesn't ask anything of the patient because enough is asked of us already. I mean, we right. have to constantly explain ourselves and our symptoms and and that's something that you know you're both working uh, against you know that presumption that this all needs to be on us because that as you've you know we'll get into this more later but you know that dynamic disrupts the patient doctor relationship it disrupts our relationship with our friends colleagues you know people in educational settings it has such profound you know implications for society and, and for hypermobile people, obviously. And Al, I think your your insights about how you were doing working on this practice and then coming to identify as disabled and to, you know, use mobility aids and that people have such a resistance against that. And it's so it's so sad and hard to experience and isolating. But that's why I'm so motivated and thrilled by the work that you two are doing, because you're you're helping to you know demystify those stigmas and and allow people like you said to take um, to have more autonomy over their own their bodies and therefore their lives and and I think you know tying that in with these other forms of disability justice and and bringing awareness to these critical issues I mean you've opened my eyes so much that you know I I cringe kind of thinking about how I you know, used to think about and approach hypermobility. And um, this is just, this is a phenomenal approach. And it seems right on for so many people who have struggled to make progress in physical therapy, occupational therapy, you know, with their doctors, massage therapists, cranial sacral therapists, you know, the list goes on and on and on. And, and, and this seems exactly what hypermobile people need on a personal level, but being backed by that science for people who are more skeptical is mm-hmm. so important. And it is just, it's so unfortunate, this this ableism that is so ingrained in our society. And I'm, you know, even still unpacking my own entrenched kind of osmosisly absorbed ableism. No, forever. Yeah, forever. Lifelong, lifelong process for yeah. sure. <laughs> yeah, it's, and oh, I, I won't again name names, but when I, sometimes go back and watch like old TV shows that used to be comforting sitcoms that I thought were just light. And fun. <laughs> like, the amount of jokes that are made, you know, at, at people's expense that are ableist and just shaming it's, it's completely opened my eyes and, and really for the better. And I, and I think the way, you know, you're both so open and discussing these issues so honestly and, and so clearly and, and also with this, um, you know, the, the science component is so important and and some people really want to understand the mechanisms. But I think the interpersonal insights that you two have gleaned, you know, from working with each other, from working with other hypermobile patients, from getting to know your own bodies, like that connection is critically important. And, you know, a lot of us, we can't trust our doctors because they, they do. And, you know, even the ones who are well-intentioned will inadvertently gaslight us about things or, you know, and so I think you fostering this program where people can learn to trust their own intuition yeah. and, and to, you know, learn t- techniques for regulating their nervous system, you know, that sounds absolutely phenomenal and really a 
a message that is so needed in this world where our options are really limited to physical therapy, which for some people works great, but for a lot of us, uh, you know, is very complicated and makes things worse and increases, you know, symptoms, especially CCI, AAI, but tons of conditions um, can be exacerbated by those kind of practices. And then all the surgeries that all of us are, you know, subject to, like that, those are really kind of the major go-tos. And then, you know, the, you know, and medications obviously have a role, but your practice to me is actually addressing the root issues of what what's going on and in a way that, you know, promotes this connection and touch and community. And so just infinite kudos and hats off. This is phenomenal. Yeah. And we, um, we really want, you know, people's experiences to make them feel good. <laughs> like the goal is to improve quality of life. It's not to be able to lift 10 pounds five times a week. Mm -hmm. um, we also, you know, really recognize that surgeries can further debilitate people in ways that we can't predict. And for most people that we work with, especially, you know, PT, PT is a part of that, that cycle, like you mentioned. And so we don't want to, you know, be alarmist, but we want to tell people what the reality of the care landscape is. And because of that, it's actually really important that you protect yourself as much as you can and know this stuff. And so that you can make decisions, informed decisions, and you are in charge of that decision-making. Pain to us is a sensory boundary. And it's really important for hypermobile people to practice noticing pain and recognizing it as a sensory boundary because we so often push through pain because we have to, you know, we have to survive. Yeah, a lot to say. Elle, do you have anything else? <laughs> no, not, not, not just this moment, no. <laughs> okay. Yeah, I think that emphasis on inform you said you use the word informed and informed consent is something I believe in so strongly. And as someone who has gone through surgeries and, you know, been told the advice they give to the general population, which is often, you know, not suited to us, you know, I would expect, okay, after this much time, my pain will be better. And then when it's actually worse or the same or a new pain has occurred alongside the pain it was supposed to fix, that's devastating. And so having reasonable, informed expectations of all of the options out there and how complicated healing can be and, and even just the deconditioning that comes with major surgery, um, you know, once people have that information, they can be operating from a place of knowledge and empowerment instead of feeling like they're just at the whim of this system, which is just unfortunately, you know, deeply ableist and and definitely not set up to care for hypermobile people. And and there are some great doctors and practitioners out there who have dedicated their lives to helping hypermobile people. And many of them have been guests. And you know, I have infinite respect for them. But the system as a whole, um, you know, in my estimation, I don't think it's much of an exaggeration to say is is really failing hypermobile people and indeed, you know, people with tons of medical conditions and people that are, uh, I, I like this word I've heard recently, biotypical um, and just have an injury or have to interact with the healthcare system. But yeah, there's just, there's a ton of failure, but 
um, what you're doing is incredibly inspiring and gives me hope that, you know, maybe this current reality won't always be the one that's just imposed on us. So the the two of you have focused a great deal on the lack of access to proper care for the Hype Plus community, um, which is a huge issue that is near and dear to my heart as well. First, could you tell us about how you define Hype Plus and then describe what you see as the major issues um, impeding uh, proper medical care for this population? Yeah, this is Elle. So um, Hype Plus is another term we use for shorthand. For us, Hype Plus includes hypermobile conditions, whether they're diagnosed, undiagnosed, or self-identified. It includes similarly neglected experiences. Um, It includes things that are actually probably related to connective tissue differences, like long-haul COVID. So this is an all expansive term we use to talk about folks who need really similar kinds of care and medical system transformation. Yeah, I mean, for us, kind of along the lines of what we've been talking about, the entire medical system is designed to not care for people. It's designed for profit, not people. Um, especially these conditions, especially when we start looking at who they affect and we start looking at the history. And for us, that means there needs to be movement building. There needs to be pressure from the ground up on the system. Um, And that's one of the reasons we focus on hypermobility as an identity kind of separate from the medical system, but also interacting with it. And then Audrey can talk about what we see as the major issues impeding <laughs> proper medical care, which is basically everything. Yeah, I mean, you know, we could have like 10 podcasts on that just alone. Um, but the short answer is it is the entire medical system at really every level. We uh, observe that the medical system doesn't work for anyone, and that includes the people who are often working within these systems. You know, it, it even limits practitioners and clinicians to what they can offer. Oftentimes, people who don't have as many access to resources or as much access to resources generally, you know, they're provided a very, very, very different kind of care than those who can afford Um, care through these boutique medical practices, which doesn't help anyone. Um, It really perpetuates the elitism and the white supremacy within the the medical system. Additionally, (laughs) aside from the medical system, um, hypermobility is not thought of as a disability. um, And this is for quite a few reasons. But if we kind of start from the basics, hypermobility is a greater than normal range of motion in the joints, right? 10 degrees or more. Widespread is if it's in four joints or more in your body. Um, And because when someone's hypermobile, they often have a much larger range of motion in their joints and can do the splits, can, you know, bend their fingers back, Um, might have a really hypermobile spine or shoulders. Um, You can probably hear a yeah. Uh, ice cream truck. We're in Brooklyn right now. And, you know, it's still warm. So hopefully, should I pause or? Well, it's a nice maybe, yeah, wait. we could take a moment or. Okay. Yeah, we'll wait for it to <laughs> go down our street. Oh, there it goes. 
sounds like it's, <laughs> I think, I think yeah, it's, it's a nice, nice little musical interlude there. <laughs> <laughs> um, and people think, you know, that disability is dis is without ability. So when you have kind of extreme mobility, people think, oh, well, if you can do that, then you should. So you're actually not disabled, which is not true for many reasons and comes from a lot of well, yeah. ableism generally. Or they don't think that you're disabled until you get injured from doing that right. um, and have those consequences. So as, as a part of that, um, hypermobile people are often really drawn to body-based practices, including sports and the performing arts. And um, it is really, hypermobility is really exploited in these places for aesthetic value. Um, and particularly in, in the performing arts, right? Like in dance, the aesthetic is, get, is to get the leg up there, right? And hold it. Mm -hmm. um, so that really perpetuates the hypermobile specific ableism that exists. And because people really fetishize that aesthetic, they want to see it. It's satisfying to them. They think it's amazing. You know, wow, this person can do this thing. Um, and Elle actually coined another term, hypesploitation, which is just that hypermobile exploitation for um, aesthetic purposes. Um, I'll let you go from here. That's oh, cool. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So we've got socially hypermobility and not being thought of as a disability and it being exploited and neglected, dismissed within all these different fields apart from medicine. And then within medicine, you've got the idea that it's rare, which is completely not true. Um, you've got the idea that if it's not rare, you know, the places it shows up commonly, the populations, it must be benign. We don't believe it's benign. Um, so we came to this understanding through a variety of things, but a lot of it was sociomedical research, looking into the history of the medical field, the history of how eugenics turned into the field of medical genetics. Um, and all these specialties were separated because of it. Genetics was really held up as a holy grail in science. Um, and still is. Really still today. is, you know, with the idea that if you identify genes, you can eliminate disabilities. Um, but hypermobile people, connective tissue is body wide. We're going to be experiencing and occupying these spaces between all these specialties, which is one of the reasons we don't get care. Um, and it's also the reason that there's a complete lack of connective tissue understanding in all these specialties, except for maybe medical genetics, but we don't think that that understanding is really on point. Um, and because of this history and because of the present reality, because of how hypermobility is thought of in the performing arts, especially socially in general, um, you just end up in a situation where there's no recognition, there's no support, and it's all on hypes to take care of themselves and try to survive. Um, it also leads to, 
you know, maybe one of the most extreme levels of violence our community experiences, which you brought up earlier, Carrie, this psychosomatic characterization mm-hmm. of experiences um, where hypermobile experiences, whether they be physiological, psychological, or both, you know, who's really to say what mechanisms are, they're characterized as psychiatric disabilities. Um, new names for hysteria that was characterized as, as hysteria back in the day. Now it's conversion disorder, anxiety, bipolar, all these different kinds of diagnoses. Um, and it's not to say that those experiences can't coexist with physiological experiences, but what happens is that it's all blamed on the psychiatric experience no kind of interplay with how they might be affecting each other is considered. Um, And then you have enormous levels of care neglect because of that, especially for the neurological manifestations of hypermobility. So really all people get is these psychiatric, what we would consider misdiagnoses, care neglect um, and or surgery. (laughs) They're not getting system care, they're not getting mast cell care, dysautonomia care, they're not getting proprioceptive therapy, it's not being approached from the mechanism, it's not being approached from the whole person, certainly not being approached from any kind of anti-ableist perspective, and this is really killing people, um, and become, has become a main focus of our work, and Audrey wants to add something. Yes, I do. Um, I also want to clarify that this may be a contested thing, but um, we I don't believe in psychosomatic medicine. No. Like, you look at the history of it, you look at the data that's coming out, the associations that kind of run the field, and it is just a, you know, Freudian continuation of interpretations of primarily neurological complications in hypermobile people um, that is you know, no one is making this up, even if it's, you know, not conscious or however they want to frame it, even if they think, oh, there is some physiologic basis. Uh, There's actually a paper that just came out talking about a, uh, what was it, neurovisceral phenotype, um, which was a new term to kind of um, identify widespread hypermobility as a, as a psychiatric, uh, a type of psychiatric disability. Um, So people really try and use these words that become, you know, less hysteria or less anxiety directly, um, but they're still talking about or really centering the psychiatric bias that's, you know, someone is deciding is someone's experience when people are obviously telling them, hey, this physically hurts. Hey, my bowel movements are effed up, you know? Hey, when I stand up, this thing happens and it feels like this. Um, To say that that is coming from stress, like stress worsens everything. Stress worsens cancer, stress worsens a cold right? But that's not the mechanism of the problem. 
And so when you only focus on, you know, the stress that someone experiences living with these very complicated, neglected and very impactful um, things, you're not really helping anyone. You're actually helping them disassociate further and kind of going into that self gaslighting of it's me, it's my fault. My life is the problem. You know, this happened this day and that's the reason. It's like the reason is you got a lot of connective tissue differences and that kind of makes things go wild, right? So, yeah. Yeah, and this is not to minimize the psychiatric things people experience. However, a lot of that is medical PTSD. It's care neglect and it's also neurodivergence. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, yeah. Um, that's just, it's a really violent tool that's used to deny people care. And if you go back into the history, which we have done and could talk about on another episode, um, it becomes quite clear how that's, how that's been used to keep these resources away from the people who need them the most. Absolutely. And that was such a phenomenal overview um, in just a few minutes of, you know, I, I asked a big question, you know, what's what's up with the lack of care access? And it's such an expansive question, but that that really summed it up in, in the quickest way I could have ever dreamed to. And I've just taken, you know, kind of a brief look at some of the history of some of these things. And it's horrifying. And you're, you're absolutely right. Like the fact that, you know, it, we've all agreed that hysteria was nonsense. I mean, it used to be commonly believed in medicine that the uterus just traveled around a woman's body and was creating all these issues, right? Like such an absurd notion. And yet, so as a society on one hand, it seems like we've gotten away from hysteria, but we really haven't at all. It's just been no. renamed yes. and the same exact systems that were there that are, you know, based in, you know, misogyny, white supremacy, ableism, all of these um, isms that again, go back to a point that you made earlier that the system is really set up for profit. And, and, and I'm so glad you also pointed out that the system doesn't even serve the providers working in it. You know, this is, this is failing people at every level and, and, and as difficult as, as it is, thank you for pointing out and just emphasizing that this is literally killing people. And, you know, in, in many different forms um, due to inappropriate care, like we recently interviewed John Furman. He talked about how his wife was never diagnosed with EDS in her lifetime and her primary care just, you know, sent her to a psychiatric facility where she was put on a number of different medications, one of which had a class action lawsuit for causing breast cancer. She got breast cancer and passed very young. And it wasn't until their daughter was diagnosed that he put the pieces together and realized, no, you know, and he knew, you know, all along, like it wasn't like the issue wasn't primarily psychiatric, but there was just no other options being given. And so there's that kind of, uh, you know, incredible tragedy and travesty that's happening. There's, you know, people who are ending their lives because they're, they're so frustrated and overwhelmed and, and don't have, don't see a future, don't see a path forward. They've been gaslit. They've been taught to gaslit themselves. Um, You know, and it just, and, and it robs so many hypermobile people of being able to live within their abilities as they are. And, and I'm, I'm so glad that you're, you know, emphasizing this concept that hypermobility, you know, is a disability and it, 
like it has tremendous manifestations even in the earliest phases of life you know where for a lot of people the pain isn't as central but you know there's still a lot of you know autonomic dysregulation mast cell issues you know kind of just tip of the iceberg to summarize that but there's you know very real physical differences going on and and i think you know part of it too growing up surrounded by people who are mostly biotypical or whatever, let's say, average range of connective tissue. Um, you know, I think there must be a spectrum. So there must be people who have excess connective tissue and are, um, you know, too, are, are more inflexible, um, which I imagine best in terms of its own challenges. But, you know, I've learned about these motor neurons we have in the brain that we learn so much of our movement and, you know, what's socially acceptable and, you know, basic things from looking at other people and that those neurons then kind of respond and can help inform how we move. And so growing up surrounded by people who are not primarily hypermobile, you know, it, it's, it's hard looking around and thinking, well, why can't I, you know, do this thing that they can do? Oh, but then I'm, I also can do this, you know, bendy arm movement that they can't do and, and kind of just putting all of that together. But um, getting clarity around this and advocating for this population is is so critically important and and understanding that history of where these things come from and that so much of this really is rooted in in eugenics like it's gotten me to fundamentally reconsider where I personally think resources should be advocate it should be allocated to and one of the doctors we interviewed recently too made the point of like, why is all the or the vast majority of the funding going into finding the genes? We got to find the genes, find the genes. Uh-huh. Like he pointed out that like we found 14 other genes and what progress has been made on that basis. And, you know, I, I look at, you know, international examples and I find what happened in Iceland terrifying. The fact that um, I think it's like 99% or approaching 100% of um, pregnancies yes. that are identified to have Down syndrome are being mm-hmm. terminated because like what you're saying, part of genetics is th- this idea that, oh, we find genes and then eliminate them. And that is just mm-hmm. so heartbreaking. And, you know, like the, the Down syndrome population is a, you know, valuable. I mean, every community is valuable, but you know, they are, you know, an incredible community and, and seeing as more awareness has grown in places like the U.S. and, you know, and on social media, you know, you're seeing more visual representations of people who actually are not only just tolerated for their differences, but accepted and supported, you know, being able to live to fuller capabilities than was previously thought possible in this very ableist system. And so I worry that that will be the end result of this endless gene hunting that we're just going to find genes to tweak. And, and, you know, I agreed with, you know, everything you just said, like, I worry that in this haste to sort of find these genes, we're not understanding the epigenetic changes and how groups of genes work in concert with each other. And I just think like, what is the end game here? Do we want to, you know, edit out all hypermobile people from society i don't think that's the solution at all a lot of the population yeah that'd be, be like editing out a lot like maybe 20 percent <laughs> of the population if you follow yeah. the numbers that we think are more accurate um but yeah i mean that was the goal of medicine that's the goal of modern medicine that's what it began with 
um, eliminating disability and other what were considered undesirable popula populations. You can't disconnect this from white supremacy. Um, and yeah. it all serves the purpose of capitalism because disabled people are considered a surplus population. They're considered inefficient. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they don't provide any kind of value to community, which is just completely bonkers and mm -hmm. not true at all because disabled mm -hmm. people are some of the most innovative, intelligent, caring, community-centered people you can meet. Yep. Um, so, you know, genetics to identify these things. And even if it's like, oh, okay, it's a gene therapy. Well, how many gene therapies have been developed and how expensive are they and how do they work? And, you know, it, there aren't very many examples. And when you get to something that's so complex genetically, like widespread hypermobility, you, you move away from the possibility of that gene therapy doing the, the same thing to every person, right? Because there's so many variations. And what genetics does is, you know, really narrows populations to try and find, you know, the same thing in, in each person. But that just cuts people out of care. Um, so, you know, again, who, who, is it, who is it serving? And, and geneticists are very, very well respected. And if you discover a gene for something, you know, that's, that's the highlight of your career. So people have personal goals mm -hmm. in this as well. Mm -hmm. And I think that to us is very clear. Yes, absolutely. And, and so thinking about like this resource allocation question, personally, I think it makes so much more sense to investigate along the lines that you are through hype access and actually, you know, working with patients and listening to them and, you know, learning from them and, and doing some of the, you know, quote unquote, hard science, even though, you know, hard science is kind of a, you know, debatable concept. But like I said, I think what you're doing is, you know, is science at its best and at its sort of most promising for improving human life. And I, I think I've, I've long suspected that there are easy gains and wins, like because the standard is so low and there's, you know, so little access, like there's so much opportunity. And so it's been kind of mind boggling why so many, you know, doctors just kind of stick their fingers in their ears and go la la la, and, you know, kind of ignore these issues, because I think there's tremendous opportunity to improve people's lives. And, you know, connecting with other hypermobile people has been so deeply fulfilling. And like, you, like you just said, to kind of echo it, like, I've met some of the smartest, kindest, most compassionate, most resourceful, most amazing people I've ever met, you know, through this podcast and through being, you know, involved in the community and, and meeting other people with similar challenges. And I've learned so much about how to treat symptoms and, and having that validation and support, you know, it makes me sad thinking, you know, if only I had that at a younger stage in life, but it also makes me that much more motivated to try to you know, help spread the word of, you know, great organizations and great work like yours so that hopefully the future, you know, doesn't have to look, you know, so much like the present and the past. And yeah, I mean, I just, I think, you know, highlighting again, just sort of, sort of unpacking what you said, like 
this issue of the somatic symptom disorder. And I hadn't even heard of this neurovisceral phenotype, but I cringed. As <laughs> soon as I it. I'm like, oh, oh. The like, newest one. Yeah. Published last week. They love yeah. to make up new names instead of just thinking about widespread connective tissue. Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> it is incredible. Their favorite thing. Yeah, the amount of sort of um, willful ignorance or uh, what, whatever it is, but this like refusal to accept. And I think it goes back to another topic that you, you touched on a moment ago, which is the fetishization of mm-hmm. this body type. And mm-hmm. oh, and it's sad, you know, not again to name names, but there's a, a very prominent, I guess, semi-famous person in the community who's made comments about, oh, I, I like this condition because it makes me better at intercourse you know mm-hmm. it's like yes oh, please don't add to this like fetishization of us because Ugh. it's so like wild and bonkers i think is maybe the word you use that's a great word for this like how on one end of the scale we're fetishized during the period of our life where we can do these you know exceptional whether it's you know physical performing but a lot of top performers in all fields like law medicine mm-hmm. um you know in that context you know we can be very fetishized and you know i've even had friends say to me like it it makes me sad looking at your body type because i know i could never have that body type and i'm like i wish i had your strength and your muscles and your ability to you know do the things that you do and so it that's all you know on one end and then on the other hand and we have this this eugenics this desire to weed out you know like just eliminate um these differences from the population it's like oh can we have something in the middle of these two wild extremes, please? Like just some basic tolerance and like take a breath and like, let's think about what hypermobility is before we either fetishize or try to eliminate, eliminate it from the population. It's just, it's head, but you both um, make sense of the madness in such a wonderful way. Yeah. Well, and I think like another kind of, complexity to all of this that is really important within the fetishization conversation is like the hypermobile people who are fetishized are generally thin, you know, they're white, maybe don't have the same kind of mast cell mm-hmm. complications insert on their skin or something like that. So the people who are hypermobile and are fat, they do not get any care. Their hypermobility is completely disregarded. Anyway, this is just one other kind of facet of the many within the conversation of fetishization. Yeah, so many dimensions. Yeah. Yes, a really important one. Thank you so much, Ellen Audrey, for joining us today and for all of your amazing insights and for the great work that you do. This was amazing, and we look forward to uh, hearing more from you in the future and, um, yeah, hopefully working together again. Yeah. Thank you so much for having us, Carrie. We we really appreciate this platform and the work you're doing and um, send all of our love to our fellow hypes out there. Yeah, and um, we are really just trying to get more information out there as much as possible. So we just launched a Instagram live um, mm-hmm. program called Hype TV. <laughs> where we'll be doing kind of short videos, debunking some of this stuff and more so that people just have access to that information. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. yeah. Thank you so much. Awesome. Yeah, thank you. And we'll include links to um, the Instagram page and to the Hype Access site. And yeah, thanks again. And thank you to all the listeners for joining us. We'll see you next time on the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Bye. Bye.
Thank you.